you know, as you have experienced this for 17 years, what's been the most challenging aspect of maybe redefining or clarifying people's misconceptions about Islam? One thing is that I think some people are uncomfortable with me saying I do find commonalities or even I find positive things in Islam. I think that makes a lot of my American community, my American Christian community, very uncomfortable. This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker, Georgia, Warsaw, Poland, San Francisco, California, and Sydney, Australia. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We also want to give a special shout-out to some of our podcast listener supporters, including Carson Fushi, Cindy Foldendorf, Bill Johnson, Ralph Stocks, and that anonymous person that keeps giving a gift in honor of CBF. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee's School of Theology, Doctorate and Ministry Program, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now... On to our conversation. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the center can be your trusted partner in ministry. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Rachel Pye Jones. Rachel is a writer with her work appearing in New York Times, The Huffington Post, Runner's World, and Christianity Today. She's the author of a new book, Pillar How Muslim Friends Led Me Closer to Jesus. Rachel, thank you for joining the conversation. Good morning, Andy. It's good to be here. Now, uh, along with the other uh, credentials I mentioned in the opener, you also run a school in Djibouti. Um, as I've interviewed guests from all over the world uh, throughout this pandemic, I'm, I'm fascinated to learn what this experience was like for you and your community. Yeah, so my husband and I run a school. It's preschool up through high school officially, although we only have one student in high school at this time. And with the pandemic um, last year, so, so in 2020, right when the pandemic hit, all schools shut down like they did in the US and around the world. Um, and so we went online, but we're, I'm not a teacher, I'm kind of on the administrative staff management side. My husband has been one of the main teachers. Several of our staff left the country because they were American, so they came back to the U.S. So others of our staff stayed, but we are dealing with a population that's not native English speaking, and the, the government has asked us to do this English speaking school. So the curriculum is in English, the kids are learning English, and they're also learning the topics in English, but they're not native speakers, a lot of them. And so trying to do that with preschool kids over Zoom, you know, and maybe the parents don't even speak English um, was quite challenging for our staff. So they made it through the spring. Um, but then in the fall, last summer, or last summer and fall, the everything opened up in Djibouti. And so we actually had a whole year in-person classes last year, which was such a gift. What uh, denominational or ecumenical tradition do you come out of? Personally, I come out of the Baptist upbringing, so I was raised in a Baptist family, the church that we are members of here in the United States when we're here. 
when we're in the U.S. is Baptist. Um, in Djibouti, we participate in a different church. It's a Protestant church officially, but there are, um, for example, on the board of directors of the church, there's eight members and eight different denominations represented. The school that we run is not religious, so it's not a it's not religious in any way. The curriculum is just um, secular school curriculum. So it's a predominantly Muslim country. So even though we are Christians living there, we're not um, educating kids in any kind of spirituality. Now, tell us about your sense of calling to this small African country, you know, uh, right off the coast of, of the Red Sea, um, you know, transitioning your family from Minnesota originally, right, all the way uh, to the other side of the world. Walk us through your sense of calling all those years ago. Yeah, so it's actually an interesting question because it's hard for me to answer specifically a sense of calling to Djibouti because that's not, that wasn't our original intention when we moved to Africa. So I am from Minnesota. My husband's also from Minnesota. When we first got married, we were living in an apartment complex, a high-rise complex, downtown Minneapolis, that was filled with primarily at that time, Somali refugees. And so we knew already that we were interested in going someplace else in the world. Both of us were coming out of really, really beautiful, wonderful family upbringings and solid faith backgrounds. And we just felt like we'd been given so much that we wanted to participate in continuing the work of God's kingdom throughout the world somewhere else that would really stretch us outside of our comfort zones. And so we had that in the back of our minds and then we're living in this apartment complex surrounded by Somali Muslims. And that was really one of my first deep engagements with Islam and with Muslims as neighbors and friends. And so um, we just started to be interested in that idea of um, the intersection of our faith. How can we talk about Jesus with people who don't have the same idea as us about Jesus? And then these Somali friends told us about an, a university in Northern Somalia, Somaliland, where things were peaceful. We, we never had even thought about going to Southern Somalia because even still today, it's just not safe for foreigners. Um, so this was in 2001 that we were kind of thinking about where should we go in the world. And my husband is a professor, he has a PhD in education. And so when these friends told us about the university in the North where things were peaceful, where they were actively looking for English speaking professors to come and participate in building up the next generation of students, we thought, okay, that would be a really good opportunity for us. It would, number one, be way outside our comfort zone. It would really stretch us. And number two, we weren't coming in as people saying, hey, we know what to do here. We have all the ideas for you guys. Um, but we were coming in as people who had been invited, who had been sought out specifically for the skills we had. I'm, I studied linguistics. My husband with his education background, that was the kind of person they were looking for. And they were actively looking for a foreigner to do this job. And so we wouldn't be taking the position from somebody else. Um, and then we would have the community and the university specifically wanted us to be there. So we knew it was going to be a stretch. Um, there were going to be security concerns, but we had this solid invitation of people who were going to look out for us and kind of shepherd us and guide us into the culture and help us to, to not make too many mistakes. You know, we still made a lot of mistakes. We still had so much to learn, but it felt like a good way to start. And so in 2003, we moved to Somaliland, Somalia. And we had two and a half year old twins at the time. And so that was the initial sense of calling was we want to participate in God's kingdom and, and talking about faith, but also participating in really holistic development and helping um, countries and people develop their skills, specifically in the education sector. That's my husband's passion. Um, and then to be stretched and to be pushed to think bigger than the ways we've, we've grown up in um, in our Minnesota upbringing, which was a great place to be, a great way to grow up, but we wanted more. And so, um, so all that sense of calling kind of combined and we went there and then within a year, so before we had actually lived in the country for a year, about 10 months in, there was some specific acts of violence. Um, three people were murdered, one just a few blocks from our home, all of them foreign. And there weren't very many foreigners at the time. And so our organization and actually, as far as I know, every organization that was working in the country left and we had to leave. So we fled the country. We had 30 minutes to pack a suitcase and threw everything into our car, threw the kids into the car and took off to the airport. 
Um, and then at that point, we, we had to reconsider, do we want to go back to the United States? Do we want to stay in Africa? What do we feel like God is calling us to do now? And we felt like we had put so much work into getting to the Horn of Africa in the first place. We weren't ready to leave in just one year, even less than one year. And so through some more friendships with Somalis and connections, people invited us to come to Djibouti, which is right across the border, actually not that far geographically from where we had been before, to again, come and teach at the university. And so we did that again with that same idea of partnering with a local institution where Djiboutians would be my husband's boss, his coworkers, you know, really our community would be local. And so um, 2004, we moved to Djibouti. So it, we, we kind of joked that it was an accident that we ended up there. But then we just kept on saying we're kind of stubborn people and we really did find a good community where we felt like our work was productive and making a, a contribution that people welcomed and the community was um, warm and positive and we continued to be stretched. So that's a long story to our calling, but it continues in that we're still there. Right now, physically, I'm in Minnesota for the summer, but our, our work and our home is still in Djibouti. So you have a new book, uh, Pillars. This book takes readers through uh, a journey of your personal and theological experience of working and living alongside Muslims in Africa. So when you moved to the Horn of Africa in 2004, um, we were just three years removed from the events of September 11th. These acts committed by extremists became a catalyst for Islamophobia in America. I wonder if you can take us back to where you were theologically at this point in your view of Christianity, but more importantly, of Islam, um, the, the religion that's definitely more prevalent in the northeast of, of Africa. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Somalis are 99.9% .9 Muslim, I would say. So we're surrounded by it. You know, it's interesting because now, of course, 9-11 still feels relevant and not that long ago, but it's such a different world now than it was when we first went. And so, and, and when my ideas were first forming about Islam, you know, we, my first ideas about Islam were just that it was something so other, so different to the point that Muslims were enemies of Christians and vice versa. Um, I didn't really have, I had no Muslim friends until I met a woman when I was in college, my first Muslim friend. And I didn't really even think about them when I was a kid. Um, but even people who weren't in my Baptist tradition were kind of outside, you know, they were other. And so Catholics or Lutherans, it was hard to imagine that we shared a faith. And that's just the naivete of a child. But, but even as I got older, um, it was, I did not know to think that Muslims could have some things in common. We don't share all things in common. We have significant of course, theological differences. But we, I learned over the years um, that we do share values of prayer, of generosity, of God's holiness, of, um, of the eternal nature of a soul and a human, the value of human life. So there's a lot of things that we have in common. But yes, when we first went right after 9-11, um, there was a lot of fear, a lot of idea of separation and division. Um, yeah, and one of the things that I really wanted to, to experience, I did experience, was to understand what is Islam's, what is the felt experience of a Muslim? What does it look like to be a Muslim? Not just in a book that maybe a Christian has written about Islam or um, kind of a polemical perspective, but what does it mean to a Muslim themselves, their, their faith? And so I enjoy asking my friends now questions about um, framing a question like, what do you love about Islam? How are you served by your faith? And kind of trying to really understand their faith from their perspective, which that's not an idea that I had, you know, all those years ago. I was looking at it from the outside, from my perspective, and I'm still looking at it from the outside, of course. But in, in terms of trying to appreciate where they're coming from, that's more how I'm framing my interactions with friends now about faith, whereas before, I was only looking at it from how I would decide they believed, if that makes sense, so how I would think about Islam, which was, like I said, always other, always separate. 
I love this quote from the book. When we announced our decision that Tom would take the job, some people, white, middle, um, Midwestern, middle-class Christians asked if we were afraid. Our neighbors would be black, relatively poor, Muslim. I think people wanted us to be afraid. If we were afraid, they would feel less guilty for their um, resistance to invest in a refugee down the street. Um, I wonder you know, as you have experienced this for 17 years, of course, with family and friends and sojourners back home, what's been the most challenging aspect of um, maybe redefining or clarifying people's misconceptions about Islam? You know, one thing is that I think some people are uncomfortable with me saying I do find this commonality. Um, or even I find positive things in Islam. I think that makes a lot of my American community, my American Christian community very uncomfortable. And so one thing that's been really challenging is to, to help people see the value of a relationship. There are often people who come to me at churches or, or gatherings, picnics, and they'll say, you know, aren't you afraid that all those Muslims over there are trying to kill you all the time? And I just, it makes me so sad. If, if that is really what they think, that Muslims are always gonna be trying to kill them. First of all, I could never live there if I really thought that every day, all the time, everyone's trying to kill me. That's just not the makings of a healthy life. Um, but also just how sad, because that means that they're afraid of the Muslim on their street corner, in their place of work. You know, Now in Minneapolis anyway, it has one of the largest populations of Somalis in North America. And they're not refugees. Some of them are, yes. But now they're second generation, third generation. They are university students. They're doctors. They're car mechanics. They're, they own restaurants. You know, they are the co-workers. They're the community now. And so if a non-Somali Minnesotan Christian is afraid of their Somali co-worker because they think they're going to kill them, it's just so sad. And so what's been challenging to me is to try to to move people toward relationship with that person out of their place of fear and toward a place of, of just recognizing the humanity in the person that they're working alongside. And it's been frustrating, to be honest, um, when people really aren't willing to do that, when they would prefer to hold on to their fear, when they would prefer to keep that division and the separation <clears throat> as opposed to just reaching out and and trying to engage. And I understand that it can be intimidating when someone maybe is wearing a headscarf and that feels like something that you don't understand or you can't relate to, but that's not intimidating. It shouldn't be intimidating. It should just be a point of, of honest curiosity or um, recognizing someone else's sincere faith and their desire to be modest. And so there's a shared connection there with a, a Christian person who also has a sincere faith and you know chooses modesty in certain ways in their life. And so to help, it's, it's, I want people to see the points of connection primarily as humans, but also as people of faith. Um, and so urging and, and kind of nudging my community in the United States towards that posture for their Muslim community and Muslim neighbors, the refugee down their street. Um, it's both, it can be frustrating if people aren't willing to take tiny steps in that direction, but it's also encouraging when people do when they do decide to do that and then they realize oh we we have a lot of things in common we both cheer for the minnesota vikings or we both you know are runners and interested in athletics so there or we have children we're interested in parenting there's so many things we can share in common um and so it's been exciting to see people actually start to make progress towards those relationships also Looking to learn about pastoral care in order to enhance your skills as a minister, lay leader, deacon, or member of a community? BSK's Pastoral Care Certificate allows students to earn credentials in pastoral care through a short three-course certificate. Students working towards a certificate in pastoral care will integrate knowledge and experience from both courses and experience in order to develop deeper skills in caring for persons who are in crisis and are suffering. The certificate is a great strategy to improve one's care and counseling as a congregational pastor and other congregational leaders. It will prepare persons to serve in chaplaincy settings, whether paid or volunteer, where a degree and professional certificate as a chaplain is not required, such as law enforcement, fire departments, some prisons, and extended care facilities. It requires nine hours graduate credit that may be rolled into a graduate degree program. 
BSK certificates may be continuing education for those already earned a graduate degree or starting place for those considering an MDiv. Learn more at bsk.edu backslash options. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. There's a, a quote from the book that I want to read or a, more of a passage. Um, the, the emphasis was on religion and the expectation was that everyone would either hate or want to kill us or they would be attracted to Jesus and we would be responsible for teaching them. These were the two suggestions, possibilities for engagement. People warned of oppressive spiritual forces holding the entire region captive to sin and unbelief with no sense that leaving the United States, we would be removing ourselves from oppressive spiritual forces there, consumerism, racism, hypersexualization, greed, power, and individualism. I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper here. Sure. Um, so two things that kind of stick out as you're reading my words back to me. One is that sense of pressure that, that when we went to the Horn of Africa, I felt a lot of pressure that, that I need to somehow be perfect, um, somehow present my faith um, in this way that, that everyone would just love it. <laughs> um, and I, I think we see all throughout scripture that I'm not comparing myself to characters in the Bible, but biblical characters are not perfect. God used them because God is perfect. Um, and so the call is not for us. We are not Jesus. I'm not called to be Jesus to people. I'm called to live as a person who's following Jesus. Um, and, but I had to kind of untangle that sense of pressure that I was feeling on myself um, to somehow be this, you know, singular representation of a Christian in this place in some way that I had built up outside of a realistic um, experience. I hope that makes sense what I'm communicating there. Um, I think we feel that often just the, somehow that the burden is on us to convince people of things. And, and what it really does is it strips the Holy Spirit of the Holy Spirit's power um, by by somehow making us more important in that equation than, than any act of God. Um, and then the, the last part of that sentence that you read about the idea that these other, other places, outside places are oppressed and dark and have all these scary things that are happening there really fails to, to allow the American Christian to see the things that are in our own culture that are, places of bondage, like I mentioned in there, consumerism, racism, sexism, all these things that hold us that we can't even see, even in our churches, these things are, um, are so strong and powerful. And um, I think we tend to think that we, as, as American Christians, we are coming from a place of light and we have, you know, progressed so far along some kind of almost mythical path of holiness or trajectory of it that we can't see our own sin, our own places of bondage. And um, it's easier to project that on other things. And I think when we don't understand something, I think when we are confused about something or we don't know it well, whether it's a culture or another religion, we're more likely to impose or project negativity onto it. But we look, we have a hard time turning that same lens of, of critical looking, critical vision onto our own culture, our own selves. Um, this idea of individualism, I think, it's a real strong 
American thing. In my experience of Christianity, even specifically Christianity outside the United States in my church, the Protestant church that we attend in Djibouti is not so individualistic. It's communal. It's, um, it's a different sense of being part of the body of Christ. And so in a lot of ways, by living for so long outside the U.S., I've I can see now some of those things more clearly and I'm, I'm working on turning that same lens on myself. Um, but also I can see some of those ways that culture or indifferent sins have, have captured the United States church as well. Um, and I think we need to be honest about that. It's not saying any better or any worse than any other place, but we need to be honest about the things that, um, that we need to work on as a church. And I think they're very evident you know, in current days of things of racism, of things of how are we treating women? How are we caring for the poor and the outsider? Um, and so, yeah, that those two things are were a real strong sense of, of what I've learned over the years. So the book is shaped around five, the five pillars of Islam, a confession of faith, prayer, almsgiving, fasting, and pilgrimage. Which of these pillars did you have the hardest time overcoming um, a certain prejudice or, or ignorance? I think the hardest one for me to understand, and so the sense of ignorance was the, the pilgrimage, the Hajj. And so every Muslim is required, if they can afford it, to go once in their life on this pilgrimage to Mecca in Saudi Arabia, where they participate in certain rituals and traditions. Um, and if they can't afford it, they'll have, you know, Allah would have grace on them for not being able to do it, but they're supposed to do it. And it's only for Muslims. So you have to be a Muslim in order to participate in this, which means that it's, it's one of the practices of Islam that I can never experience, that Christians can never experience. And so in order to understand it, I've had to ask a lot of questions to people who have been on Hajj or I've watched documentaries or read books and memoirs about it. Um, but the other practices, you know, fasting, giving, praying, having a creed of faith, a statement of faith. I can understand those things as a Christian. I definitely understand those things. And they're different and our theological perspectives on them are different and why we do them, the motivations for them are different. But I can appreciate those things in a, a real personal way. The Hajj, the pilgrimage is so different um, and so specific to Islam. You know, there's there are pilgrimages that Christians take over time. There's different ones across Europe. There's, there's ideas of pilgrimage throughout scripture, but we don't have one shared experience that as an entire Christian global body, we do every year, very specific rituals, you know? And so that was challenging to understand. And, and even the sense that you could feel about being excluded from something, um, I think is an interesting idea to, um, what does it mean that this is so specific only for Muslims? I think that provides a real bond for them because it is something that they share, whether no matter what country you're from, no matter what language you're speaking, you're doing these same things. Um, and so as, as a person who's outside of that, but I have friends who are going on it or experiencing that with each other, it's, it makes for an interesting dynamic. And um, it really made me think about what is what are some kind of global experiences for a Christian that we share and one in particular is the Lord's Prayer that people recite or, or different, there's many different experiences that we do as a body of the Eucharist. Um, but I had never thought about that before. I had never thought about any aspect of my Christian faith as somehow connected to a Christian in Southeast Asia or in South America um, in a way that would connect us as a body. And so in that way, thinking about the Hajj, the pilgrimage, or thinking about some of these other Islamic rituals that unite Muslims globally helped me to appreciate my own participation in the, the body of Christ globally. I know you've obviously written an entire book about how these five pillars have given shape to your spiritual journey, but I wonder, you know, which of these pillars have made the biggest impact on, on your spiritual formation? Um, it's hard for me to differentiate, to pick one out of, out of prayer giving and fasting, those three have been pretty significant, but I'll talk about prayer specifically because it's such a visible part of our life in Djibouti. So in the United States, you be working right next to a coworker who's also a Christian and you might never know it. 
because there's no thing in your day that would visibly say I'm a Christian. But in Islam, in Djibouti, there's the call to prayer. Five times a day, every day, the call to prayer sounds off from mosques all over the city. Most blocks have at least one mosque. From my house, I can hear three going off at the same time, five times a day. And so, you know, people are, they'll, they'll stop their work. If not everyone will pray, but many people do. They'll stop working. They will either go to the mosque or they'll be in their home. Or sometimes a group of men will set up a, a place outside just on the street where they'll pray together. And so whether you're praying or whether you're just watching, you're seeing people pray together every day. You're hearing the call to prayer every day. And, and when Muslims pray, they first will do ablutions, which is washing. And so they'll wash specific parts of the body in specific methods, and then they'll pray. And the prayer is very visible, physical. So they're standing and they're bowing. They're putting their forehead to the ground. They're standing up again. Um, and so it's, you can't miss it. <laughs> you, you have to see this prayer happening. And so in that way, in a Muslim country, in a predominantly Muslim country, spirituality and faith is so pervasive. It's part of daily life all the time. It's not something that you hide away for a private experience with God. It's not something that you can't talk about in a public space. And so prayer and the, the physicality of the Muslim prayer, the unity of it, those are things that have really impacted me. Um, I can't say that I respond to the call to prayer five times a day, every day. I do not. Um, I also don't physically bow and put my head to the ground all the time when I pray, but I do sometimes now more than I used to. Um, Muslims do it so often that if they are devout to the point where they are praying consistently over the course of their lifetime, they'll actually get a a bruise or a tattoo kind of mark on their forehead, um, which marks them as someone who has been so faithful in prayer. Um, and so those things about the physicality of, of the spiritual life of a Muslim have impacted me. Um, we have this idea in, in, at least in my upbringing, of um, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing in terms of, of giving is when Jesus said that. But in a lot of ways, that becomes a kind of way of either hiding our spirituality or not actually doing anything spiritual because we're, we're keeping it private. Um, but Muslim faith is visible. It's outward. It's, um, you know, people are giving right in front of you on the streets and they're talking about it and they're challenging each other to give more. And sometimes it's in a competitive way and sometimes it's in a boasting way, but not always. Um, and so the, in those ways, the very visible and tangible um, practices of faith have left an impact on me. Yeah, I love this quote from the book. I loved watching Somalis pray. I still do, though it feels awkward to stare into the bubble of a holy space they create any and everywhere, airports, market stalls, hospital corridors, beaches, tracks, and field competitions. I've learned not to walk in front of someone praying, but all other motions and conversations continue around them. Um, in, in the book, you talked about how three faiths, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, share Hagar, um, the discarded servant of, of Sarah and Abraham. Uh, what's fascinating to me about the study of the history of religion um, is the way that Christianity and Islam also share Jesus. Of course, there are some theological disconnects. However, um, you know, the early days of the Islamic movement um, for, for the teachings of Jesus, specifically on compassion for the poor and the marginalized, it gave shape to, to Muslim practices. I wonder if you might take us a little deeper into your experience of how Jesus influences Muslim traditions. Hmm. That's a good question. Um, you know, most of my friends, they're not extremely conversant in the Quran. They're more conversant in some of the hadith and the traditions. Hadith is the sayings or the traditions of the Prophet Muhammad. Um, and so their, their experience or the knowledge of Jesus is not very extensive. That's my personal friendship. Um, more broadly, I think there is more engagement with Jesus. So he, in the Quran, Jesus is referred to as a word from Allah. Um, he's born of a Virgin Mary. He, one of the, actually the first miracle that Jesus does in the Quran is he speaks from the cradle. Um, but he also 
later in life performs miracles, heals people, um, raises the dead. And so there's a sense in which Jesus is quite unique, even in the Quran and in some of the traditions around um, the teachings of Jesus. However, you know, a Muslim would say that he did not. There's debate about what happened at the cross, whether or not Jesus died and stayed dead or whether or not someone else died in his place. Um, but there is no sense of um, atonement or needing forgiveness or uh, an ongoing intercession that Jesus would be doing on, on behalf of people. Um, and at the same time, at the end, when, at the end of all time, Jesus will be coming back to slay the Antichrist and to reign. And so, you know, there as a Christian, I'm very drawn to those, not drawn to maybe the wrong word, but I'm interested in those ideas of Jesus in Islam, because it's, for me, I think that's fascinating to see those connection points. Um, but for my Muslim friends, he, Jesus doesn't play a very significant role um, and, and I mean, meaningful because they believe in all, all the prophets. So from um, Adam, Moses, Noah, Abraham, you know, they have this heritage of prophets as well. And Hagar, she's not considered a prophet, but she's very much a part of, for example, the Hajj, the pilgrimage rituals and things they participate in there are very much around the story of Hagar and Ishmael. And so Jesus is part of that lineage for them of the prophets. Um, a little bit different, a little bit unique, but not as unique as he is in Christianity. Um, yeah, so I find those points of connection very interesting. Well, on the, on the flip there, side, there a, go, go ahead. ahead. Well, I think they're interesting points of conversation between Christians and Muslims, um, because it is not just Jesus, but some of the other people and um, historical events that we have in common, I think, are worth continuing to explore on a deeper level. Yeah, I, I guess on the flip side, uh, Christianity tends to discard the teachings and wisdom and insight of, of other faiths. Um, just on the surface, I think that tends to be the, the mode of Christianity. Again, you know, a lot of Christians will point to, um, you know, John, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. Um, so I wonder if you might take us a little deeper into how how might the teachings of Muhammad benefit Jesus followers today? You know, what have you learned from the, the Muslim faith that has enhanced your spiritual journey? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, first of all, in many ways, some Christians would imagine that Christianity has superseded Judaism, right? And so Islam, Muslims often feel the same way about Christianity, that they have superseded Christianity. So I think that's an interesting dynamic that Christians tend to ignore and not really wrestle with. Um, but yes, what can the Prophet Muhammad teach or what can a Christian learn? Um, I mean, some of the, the things that come out in these five pillars, like the physicality of prayer, um, like the, the real tangible giving and engaging with the poor, those are things that I absolutely think Christians can and should learn. So one of the things that I found really interesting as I was researching for the book is that when it comes to zakat, which is the, the pillar of giving, um, Christians, our tithes, we tend to say 10%. I know there's some debate on that, but we generally say 10% is what's sort of expected as a tithe. Within Islam, the tithe, what they call the, the zakat that they're required to give is 2.5%. And so it's easy to look at those numbers as a Christian and think, oh, well, we are more generous, right? But if you actually look at practice, the what at least American Christians tend to give in reality is 2.5%. And so in that sense, I felt like, well, that's interesting that these two are the same. What Muslims are expected to do is 2.5. What Christians actually do is 2.5. Um, and so I found that I started to think about Islam as very kind of realistic and Christianity as idealistic. We're supposed to be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect, right? Well, we can't be. So we need Christ to help us attain to something greater than what we can produce on our own. And I'm so grateful for that. I need that. 
but Islam, you know, has this more realistic expectation of you're only going to be able to do this much, so just do this much. Um, even the the way they got to five prayers, this is it's just a tradition. But what they often will say how they got to the five prayers is that God first asked Muslims to do fifty prayers, and Muhammad was in heaven talking with God about this and um, said, "Okay, I'll go back and I'll tell the people fifty. But the other prophets, I think it was Abraham and Moses. Um, said to him, no, Muhammad, the people are never going to be able to do 50. Go back and ask for less. So he goes back and he says, you know, we can't really do 50. So God says, okay, 45. So this happens multiple times. And each time the number of prayers gets down by five. Kind of like when Abraham is arguing with God over the, the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. And eventually Muhammad gets down to five times of prayer from God and just says, I can't ask for any less. We, we just are going to have to make this work. We're going to have to do five times a day. And so that's, you know, in tradition, how it got established to be five times of prayer. And again, it's a, a, a realistic, we can't handle more than this, God. Um, and so I think in those ways, it's interesting to consider as a Christian, looking at those aspects of Islam that are, um, this is about the limit of what we can expect a person to give from their income, or this is about the limit of what we could expect a person to invest in terms of their time of prayer. Um, and so in that way, I think we can take that, that, that idea, that knowledge and look at ourselves and say, okay, what is realistic in my humanity, my weakness, my, my bent, my personality. And then as a Christian, I can see that my limitations as a human, I can appreciate that is so evident from these Islamic practices. And then I can just kind of lose myself in joyful uh, delight at the grace and the abundance of Jesus that has been given me um, that, that I, can, I can do that. Be perfect as your father in heaven's perfect, not because of me, but because of Jesus. And so I'm not sure again that this is kind of a, a rambling way of saying, I appreciate and have learned more about my actual humanity through some of the teachings of Islam. And then I have appreciated to a really prof more profound and deep level the, the miracle of grace um, to overcome my weak humanity. There's a, a brilliant book written by Kenneth Bailey entitled Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. And the author examines Jesus through the lens of those who are from the region and culture that Jesus Jesus ministry took place. Um, and it's a fascinating way to understand Jesus from a different lens or perspective. Um, now living in the Horn of Africa for, for 70 years, I, I wonder how your perspective of Jesus has been enhanced through the lens of the culture you have immersed yourself into. Yeah, that is a great book. I highly recommend that book by Kenneth Bailey. Um, so my idea of Jesus has just become much more I think realistic in terms of when I was here living in suburban Minneapolis or downtown Minneapolis, Jesus was sort of uh, like an idea, an image. Um, I had these pictures, you know, that we would we see often flowing blonde hair. Um, I haven't really seen like a really pale white Jesus with blue eyes, for example, but generally looking like me kind of Jesus, um, but sort of ephemeral. And now living in the heart of Africa, where some of the landscape, it's not, you know, it's not Palestine, it's not Israel where Jesus was, but it's closer. And some of the landscape around me, I can picture, you know, the, where Jesus might've been walking or some of the hillsides he may have sat on. I can, I see shepherds out in the field and that's not a field, it's like a, well, a field of rocks and dust. Um, with their, their arms slung over the a stick over their shoulders and the sheep and the goats following behind. And so I can picture more the sheep that Jesus would talk about or the dust. One thing that just struck me as I was reading in John 13, when Jesus was washing the disciples' feet, those feet were dirty. <laughs> you know, an American foot is not so dirty. We're always wearing socks and shoes and we're walking on grass, at least in Minnesota. Um, but a, a foot in the desert is tough and dirty and gnarled and, um, and just that. So those kinds of real 
physical, tangible things of the heat, the sense of um, the, just the community around the people being kind of everywhere instead of all isolated in separate homes. And, you know, an urban city just looks so different from a rural village in Eastern Africa. And so, and of course, like I said, Jesus was not in Eastern Africa, but it's closer to what his life may have looked like at that time. And I still see donkey carts. They're driving along the same road as all the cars will be on. There will be a donkey cart and it might have in the back just loaded up with hay and different things. And there's women wearing their scarves and there's men wearing, um, they call them ma'awis in Somali. It's a, we, we jokingly call it a man's skirt, but it's more of a robe or a skirt than a pair of blue jeans. And so in those ways, the actual physical things about Jesus's life, the sandals he may have worn, the animal life that were around him have become so much more vivid and alive that I feel like I can picture some of the stories in the New Testament in a much more clear way that it's vibrant with detail of smell and and touch. And I'm really thankful for that. You know, as, as you look at your 17 year experience, um, what has it taught you about interfaith work? You know, for those that are listening to this, um, they want to be more conscious and collaborative with those of different faiths within their communities. What would you suggest to them are ways to get started? So there are some very organized types of things. Um, often during Ramadan, a mosque will host an open meal at the end of the day. So Ramadan is their month of fasting. And all day long from sunrise until sunset, they will not eat or drink. But then in the evening, they'll have a big feast. So often a neighborhood mosque will host an open meal at the end of the day. So if someone lives near a mosque, you could, could participate in something like that. You could also just go to a mosque. I know that might be really scary to some people, but I know some have. They'll just either show up or they'll call ahead of time and say, hey, I'm a Christian or I'm, I'm just, a, I'm not a Muslim. Maybe I'm some other religion. Um, and I'm just interested in learning about Islam or seeing what your mosque is like. Could I come for a visit? There are very specific things you could do like that but on a much more simple or maybe an easier level relationships <laughs> building relationships with that coworker, with that neighbor with the kid at school the family at school who's a muslim family i think as people of faith we have so much in common actually with muslims you know in a public school setting for example and just befriending them and not thinking of them as muslim or as something else, but just another family that is participating in the same thing as we are, the same volleyball game or drama event, um, getting to know them, inviting them over. And then at some point, I do think there is a place for real questions of curiosity, not in any sense of judgment, not in any sense of argumentation or need to coerce, but, but hey, I don't know much about Islam. I think that would be a great way to start a conversation. I don't know much about your religion. I would love to hear about it from your perspective. Could you help me understand this? Could you explain, um, you know, why you're fasting or what does prayer feel like to you? Those kinds of questions I have found anyway, people have really delighted in answering them. And I would love it if someone asked me that question. And often my friends return the question to me, you know, I'll ask them, how do you feel after you pray? What does that do for your spirit? And then they'll say, Rachel, how do you feel after you pray? How do you engage with God? And we just have this really beautiful conversations. And so I think I would really appreciate it if someone sincerely came to me and asked a real question like that. Um, and so just to, to be honest about what you don't know, we don't have to know it at all. Um, and I don't think that a Muslim would expect a Christian to know everything about Islam. And so, yeah, just to engage relationally, I would really encourage people to do that. Don't be afraid, um, just be honest. What are some healthy interfaith practices? Um, so again, specifically sharing a spiritual thing, a, a marker for your year. So those meals that a mosque might host, um, I think some churches have tried to do something as well, similar to that over Christmas or Easter. Um, you know, a real low... Uh, low spiritual tension kind of thing to engage in would even be a Thanksgiving meal together. We've really enjoyed doing that in Djibouti because there's nothing 
spiritual about it. It's cultural. It's definitely American. Um, and there's a lot of American things about it in history that we could talk about. But in that way, just sharing a meal together opens up relationships. And then there can be some more interfaith discussion. Um, some people would potentially talk about prayer together. That can be sensitive depending on your personal conviction or theology. But um, so Muslims have the Salat prayer, which is the one I talked about, where they bow down, stand up, and wash ahead of time. But they also have a prayer called Du'o. That's what it's called in Somali anyway, um, which is much more spontaneous and happens just in over the course of life, you know. And so I think that it could there could be a real space for that kind of prayer together. So I've had friends who have I've taken them to the hospital for to have a baby or to, you know, in the course of an emergency. And so on the way to the hospital, I'll just I'll be driving and I'll put my hand out, not my hand on the steering wheel, you know, and I'll just put it out over them and I'll say, while I'm driving, eyes open, oh God, we need you, be with us. Just something so simple. And they can easily say amen to that. Or if they say that kind of prayer for me, you know, I've had some different health issues and things over the years. And I've had Muslim friends put out that prayer for me of, oh God, be with Rachel, heal her. You know, those kinds of things we can share together without, um, without pressure, without fear. And then we can just say, amen. You know, we are each praying in our way. Um, and I think we can partner in that way together. We can interfaith. We can work for peace and justice together. Um, we can work for quality curriculum in our schools. We can work for healthcare. There's all kinds of things we can do together as people of faith caring about the world we live in, partnering with a Muslim and a Christian and a Buddhist and a Jew around, you know, all together. If you want to stay connected with Rachel, check out her work at rachelpiejones.com. That's P-I-E-H um, with the Jones. Follow her on social media. Uh, the book is Pillars, How Muslim Friends Led Me Closer to Jesus. You can purchase it wherever books are sold. Rachel, thank you for making the time to have this conversation. We are grateful for your openness and vulnerability to show us how your journey with people of other faith has refined and broadened your spiritual journey. Thanks, Andy. I enjoyed it. This podcast is presented to you by McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, theology.mercer.edu to learn more about their programs and scholarships. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and McAvee School of Theology's Doctorate of Ministry program. Check out cvf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.